1: He said, Mike, I'd like to know if you would like to buy a car from me. I said, well, Mr. Brown, I really don't have any money. I couldn't buy a car from you. He said, okay. Joe, would you like to buy the car from me? And Joe said, well, how much do you want for it? He said, one dollar. And my jaw
0: dropped. That's Pastor Michael Oxentenco, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Previous messages are archived there along with the actual live broadcast at the time it happens. And we hope that you'll join us. Again, remember that phone number. It's 888-244-HOPE. Today's Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Oxentenco is entitled Force Field Faith. That's Forcefield Faith, and it is a part of the Genesis series. It is available online at reachingyourheart.com. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenco, with today's Reaching Your Heart.
1: Dear Father God, I bow my head before you, thanking you that you have not left us to weakness in our walk with you, that there is a force-filled faith that was manifested at the cross, and that force-filled faith is ours when we hold on to the hand that is our shield. We thank you, O Father, for being more than just a savior, being a shield, a sure defense in times of trouble. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, they named him Alfie, and it was a really good reason why they named him Alfie. You know the Alpha and the Omega? They talk about dogs having this hierarchical kind of thing. Well, Alfie was the Alpha, no doubt about it. The family dog in Philadelphia named Alfie saved a two-year-old toddler from what seemed a certain death. Now, you measure what I'm saying when I'm done. You see if I'm not right. As the child's parents slept in bed, they thought everything was fine, two-year-old Philip Redmond, Jr., was there in his crib they were sure it was fine they were safe asleep they thought but then this little guy woke up in the middle of the night and started crawling on the floor his parents had placed a playpen in front of a window that was broken they were sure he couldn't move that playpen out of the way but little philip redmond jr had a little bit of the hulk in him and he picked up that thing and he moved it out of the way And then he came to the window, and what did he do? He climbed right out the window, he pulled himself out the window, and he smelled the wonderful air, and he felt the freedom of the height. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Philip Redmond Jr. They were confident their child would be safe. Well, it was not. Fortunately for Philip, little Alfie was awake and alert. The family dog followed Philip out onto the roof and began to bark at him like a nagging parent. Bark, 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 bark. As Philip was running along the roof line from house to house, little Alfie was barking at his heels, keeping him away from the edge, snipping at him. He was moving across the series of houses in this townhouse kind of thing, high above the skyline. And here was Alfie at his feet, snipping and barking, keeping him from falling to a certain death. As Philip was running along from house to house, the ordeal ended when a kind neighbor reached out the window and grabbed the boy and brought him to safety. That's quite a story, isn't it? Well, in the Bible, Abram had a nephew like little Philip Redmond Jr. They got into trouble. And God called on Abram in the elder years of his life to reach his hand out and pull his nephew Lot to safety. Let's look at the story as it begins in Genesis 13 and verse 5. The Bible says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. In verse 8, Abram speaks to his nephew Lot and he says, Let there be no strife between you and me, and then he adds, for we are kinsmen. It should not be because we have so much and we drain so much from the land that there should be this disconnect, this disunity, this conflict between us. Let us have peace because the tie between us is more important than cattle and the like. And perhaps this is the basis for the famous line in Psalms 133, verse 1, when it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When conflict arises in the Christian family, there must be humility that arises to meet the conflict head on. And so Abram, as the senior of the two, he marshals the humility necessary to put the conflict at ease. And so the land on the left and the land on the right they could not go together they were just too large and so he gives the choice to his nephew lot you choose which way you want to go and I will go the other choose well now I can remember when I was in academy I had a Bible teacher I stayed at his house and he once gave me a choice there was another friend of mine who had stayed at his house previous to this his name was Joe Weaver and I remember as we were both sitting in the car with Mr. Brown who was my Bible teacher he said Mike I'd like to know if you would like to buy a car from me. Of course, I had nothing to my name. I said, well, Mr. Brown, I really don't have any money. I couldn't buy a car from you. He said, okay. Joe, would you like to buy the car from me? And Joe said, well, how much do you want for it? He said, one dollar. And my jaw dropped. And he bought a wonderful car that lasted him for five years for one dollar. I learned right then and there you'd never give an answer without probing a little bit to find out what the offer is about. But you see, Lot here is predisposed to choose on a different kind of grounds. He doesn't want to ask Abram what his frame of mind is. He's not concerned with the principle behind something. He's really motivated by self-interest. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered Everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11, so, the so there is loaded, so Lot chose, and then the key phrase in verse 11, he chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Lot noticed that the Jordan Valley was watered like the Garden of the Lord. And who would not want to go back to the Garden of the Lord? you remember the book of Genesis? That when you go back toward Eden in the east, you are in essence leaving God. Because Eden to be found by faith is always in the west. So it looked like the Garden of God, but it was not the Garden of God. So Lot chose what looked like a garden. Boy, would he soon discover it was not the Garden of God. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah lay in the plain of Jordan. The Bible says they separated from each other. By this time, Abram is an old man. He has left his homeland for a land that God has promised he will receive. And think about the impact of this decision. God said, Abram, go from your land, and your country, your kindred, to the place that I will show you and I will make of you a mighty nation and so on. And now here is the place and here is the best spot in the place that God has led him to. And Lot gets it. He gets the rocky hill country to the west. And it looks like the promise of God is something that is simply slipping through his fingers. And he can never get a handle on it. Look at verse 14 of Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. So God was waiting to see what Abram would do. Whether or not he would choose for himself the best of the land, he did not. And suddenly the Lord breaks into the point of his disappointment. He breaks into the time of his life when it seems like things are awry. And the Lord says to him, lift up your eyes. In other words, don't look down. Don't get discouraged. Don't get disenchanted with what has happened to you. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. And it may be you have come here with your eyes looking down because life has not dealt you the right deal and you feel that somehow you've been left out of God's plan. And God's message to you is the same as it was to Abram. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. You see, God is not going to find you in the future. God wants to find you right where you are at, even if you're struggling with disappointments. He said, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And that's what the devil did in Job 1. Remember, he came to God, he says, I have been walking to and fro the length and breadth of the land. By so doing, he's saying, it's my land. God is telling Abram, I will make you a king, a sovereign over all that you see in my plan. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Now this is the setting for the first fight in Abram's life, and boy, is it a conflict! Up to this point, Abram has been a passive man. You look at Genesis 12, and he was reluctant to oppose Pharaoh when he seized his wife. He kind of took it in a laid-back kind of way. When pushed to controversy with his nephew Lot, he let his nephew have his way. In chapter 13, he gave him the best of the land, didn't fight over the land. But the crises of chapter 14 changes everything in Abram's life forever. Let's look at verse 1 in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Ellasar, Chedorlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. Verse 2. These kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Admah; Shemimber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. What a line we have here on the Bible. We have four kings from the north, four kings from the south. Now, the invasion from the north is led by four kings, which represent four dimensions of the land of Babylon, the land of the east that Abram left behind. And the names of these kings in the Hebrew tongue and in ancient Semitic tongues are very important to understand their character. Let's look at them. The first king claimed to be the wise one. Amraphel, king of Shinar, means sayer of darkness from the two rivers. That sounds kind of neat, doesn't it? Sayer of darkness from the two rivers. The name most likely implies that Amraphel was the wise one who lived in the land of the two rivers, in the land of Babylon. He could find out what is in the darkness, the deep things, and reveal it. So they all looked up to him as the wisest of the four. The second king claimed to be the ferocious one, Ariot, king of Eliasser. Arioch means lion-like, and Eliezer means God is a chastener. Of course, it is implied that Arioch is the lion that God uses to defeat evil kings like the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the righteous right on the move for the cause of God. Number three, the third king claimed to be the fertile one. Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, means a handful of sheaves, the king of eternity. Whatever he does turns to gold. Whatever he does becomes plentiful. He is the one who grows and prospers fertile in the land. And the fourth king claimed to be the great one, the superior son. Titled king of Goan means the great son, the king of the nations. There's almost something messianic in that, isn't there? I am the son of sons, the great one. What we have here is the fantastic four. The king of wisdom, ferocity, fertility, and greatness. The fantastic four were on the move from the north coming into the realm of the promised land. The text says they set their sights against the four kings of the valley of Jordan. Now, by contrast, these kings in the south are not as with it as the kings in the north. They are the not-so-fantastic four. They are four, nonetheless. Now, let's look at their names. King number one. Barah, king of Sodom, means in Hebrew, in wickedness, king of burning. How do you like that? He's the king that burns in the end. Now imagine electing someone like that to be your king. Going to his office and saying, by the way, I need a conference with in wickedness. I need to get counsel. I need some laws passed. I mean, that's the name of their king. King number two, Bershad, king of Gomorrah, means in rebellion, king of submersion. His kingdom sinks in a well of fire as it goes into the earth in some kind of earthquake. He's the king that sinks in the end. But imagine having a king called in rebellion. Okay, king number three, Shanab, king of Adna means sin. The moon god is his father. He's the king who never trusts God as his father. He found a father in a foreign kind of god from God. King number four, Shemember, means my name is mighty. He was king of Zoboam, which means glories. And the king of Bala, which means swallowed up, that is Zoar, which means little or insignificant. Now put it all together, here's what you have. My name is mighty, always means you are king of glories, that is swallowed up, and in the end, your kingdom is really like Zoar, which means you're nothing, you're insignificant. So even though he thought he was something, he's really the king of an insignificant, nothing kind of kingdom. The fantastic four come from the north to engage the not-so-fantastic four from the south. And that is the tension that we find Abram in. Now, why is this significant? In the book of Daniel, chapter 11, we have the king of the north, and we have the king of the south. And what we find in the prophecy of Daniel is that God's people are always in the middle. They at times align with one or the other, but they're always in the middle, caught between these two forces, the north and the south. And according to the book of Revelation, that tension exists all the way until we get to the end of time, and when the king of the north will deal a deathly blow to the king of the south and gain final global dominion before the coming of the Lord. So they represent kingdom principles at work in history until the end. So the fantastic four come from the north. They obviously have the upper hand. Now the fantastic four sweep down from the north and engage the not so fantastic four in battle and they begin to fall in the tar pits as they run like mad for safety. Look at verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them and the rest fled to the mountain. So the enemy took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the sons of Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed.
0: We'll continue with today's Reaching Your Heart and Pastor Michael Tanko in just a moment. If you'd like to attend the worship service, I will have details on how you can do that here at the close of our broadcast today, so please stay tuned. You can always attend online at reachinghearts.org slash video. That's reachinghearts.org slash video. Many archived messages are available there for you, and you can attend a live service in a streaming format at that website, reachinghearts.org slash video. Today's broadcast is a part of the Genesis series, and you can find it online at reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Let's continue now. Here once again, Pastor Michael Tanko.
1: When the battle ends, the not-so-fantastic four kings of the south are hiding in the mountains, and Abram's nephew Lot is a hostage in the hands of the terrorists who have broken in and taken him away. I mean, this is like stuff we're seeing today. This is like a Osama bin Laden kind of activity in play here. To make matters worse, the terrorists are on their way home praising the righteous achievements of the fantastic four who have defeated these kings of the south. In verse 13... A man escapes from the camp and comes to Abram. He says, Ah, they took Lot. They took everything we had. And I imagine he's sobbing the storyline. Oh, oh, I don't want to do that. Abram says, Well, tell me what's going on. But he gets to the essence of the story. Lot, your nephew, his family kidnapped by the terrorists. Now remember that God had promised Abram just after Lot left for the Jordan Valley that he would give him that valley along with everything else to the north, the south, the east, and the west. With Lot gone, wouldn't it look like the Lord had answered his prayer? Yes or no? Suddenly the Lord has spoken. Great and marvelous are his ways. Now, this is the first test of Abram's life. It looks like the fantastic four have given Abram everything he wants. Only one problem. Lot is his kinsman. And Abram will not win if it means Lot must lose. He will not win that way. Abram was a man who cared more about his brother than his brother's goods. Abram was a man who cared more about his kin than a good win. Abram was a man who measured greatness by kindness instead of conquest. And for the first time in Abram's life, he had to fight for kindness to pull his nephew Lot to safety. He had to take a stand in a way that was foreign to his temperament and his nature because suddenly kindness is on the line and kindness is put to the test. He had to stand up for the weak or he would never be able to stand at all as a man again for the rest of his life. He is not a young man. He is a man advanced in years and the call is clear, stand up for the weak, and he does. Dear heart, there comes a time in every Christian's life when kindness must be measured by strength of character that meets the bully head on so the weak can be set free. And maybe God has called you to stand up for someone who can't stand up for themselves. That was given to Abram. The first test, so mild and meek, Abram becomes a man of war, reluctantly so. Genesis fourteen fourteen. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, Born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, it's clear. The Bible says there were 318 trained men. The Hebrew word trained is the same word we have for Enoch, Hanuk, And it means to dedicate. These were trained men in the sense that they were dedicated men. What made them fit for service in the call of Abram? It wasn't because they were men of war. It's because they were dedicated to God and God could fill them with power and use them for his cause. They were dedicated to Abram and Abram was a man of faith. And so with 300 dedicated men, the fantastic four were in trouble. God doesn't need numbers to win, your heart. He doesn't need the biggest armies, the biggest churches, the most impressive buildings or the vast array of resources to the eye. All God needs are dedicated men and women who are willing, even if they are a small group, to do the will of God, and then God will act. Look at verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and routed them and pursued them to Habba, north of Damascus, So Abram gathers the goods and gives a tithe of everything to Melchizedek, king of Salem. Imagine these 318 dedicated men just in hot pursuit of the fantastic four, routing them, taking everything back, defeating the mightiest kings in the world. It's an amazing thing. So Abram, at the end of the story, gives a tithe to Melchizedek, king of Salem. He was priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek means king of righteousness and Salem is the word shalom, which means peace. Abram recognized that greatness is not found in war. It is found in making peace. And so he gave a tithe to the king of peace. Test number two comes to Abram in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now suddenly it looks like the promise of God has come to Abram through the kings of Sodom. If it's not the king of the north, the kings of the north will do it. The kings of the south will give him the promise. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, maker of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel and Mamre take their share. He's saying to them, listen, I'm not going to be bought off. I didn't do this so I could get wealthy rescuing you. I did this because kindness is more important than conquest because God has called me to take a stand for the underdog. And even though you're a rotten kind of guys, you're the underdog and I stood up for you. With the victory behind him, Abram realizes that the truth about God is on trial here. What kind of witness will he give for God to these evil, wicked kings of the south? Will he show that it was for his own reasons he did this? Or will he show that he serves a God who is worth following regardless of the outcome? Abram doesn't need the goodies of Sodom, the loot of the Fantastic Four or anything else to be important and significant in God's plan. Abram followed God because God is worth following. Even if you don't get one nickel for following God, follow God because the riches are in God himself. The man or woman who follows God to get rich is not following God. You know, these prosperity preachers that get on the television set and tell the people of this country that if they're a Christian, they're going to suddenly do well. They are a denial of the martyrs of the last 2,000 years who lost everything and found the riches of God by faith burning at the stake or on the run in a dungeon or hiding in some forest. They just simply don't fit into the prosperity preaching of our time. And dear heart, God may be calling you at the end of time to have a fate like theirs. Riches is found in God and in relationship with Jesus Christ, not in some rich outcome that you've been able to manipulate through your faith. And so he gave up the loop because kindness is more important than conquest. As the thrill of victory wears off, Abram begins to think about what he's just done. What he has just done was dangerous but now he realizes that he's a political target up to this point he's been a man of peace but now he has become a man of war yes for the underdog but nonetheless a man of war and that means that some would be terrorist some kind of fascist foe who wants to make an example of someone could look at him and take him out to make himself great and Abram begins to become very much afraid he's an old man He's no longer young. Fear begins to rattle in his arthritic bones for the first time in his hard life, the hard journey. God comes to Abram when Abram is exposed to open danger he cannot control, to a life he cannot manage, to circumstances beyond his grasp to put together. And look at verse 1 of Genesis 15. It's really the peak of this story. After these things. You see, all of what we've read so far is a setup for verse 1. After these things things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision fear not Abram I am your shield your reward shall be very great this is the first time in the Bible that God manifests himself as a shield you know there are many metaphors for God in the Hebrew Bible God is a fortress God is a rock God is a flame and fire God is a river of living water but here God is a shield
0: That will conclude the first portion of Force Field Faith. Today's Reaching Your Heart, it is available online at reachingyourheart.com. You can visit us at the church for the worship service every Saturday at 11 o'clock. We'd love to have you there. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland.